Welcome to Monday Morning Murder in the News with Alyssa Carroll. Good morning, heathens, and happy Murder in the News Monday that I am doing pretty good about releasing every single Monday morning because the rest of the regular news is just hot, scary garbage, and you know you'd rather be hearing me and my bullshit anyway. So I've scoured the internet for the headlines so you don't have to. Happy commuting, and here we go. Now, I want to thank some of my international listeners because they are beginning to send me some international murder or news articles, and I really, really appreciate that, guys. Just keep them coming. I want to include all of you. We are a global community. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Also... In case you didn't hear, Lori Vallow has been found guilty on all charges, murdering both children and conspiracy to murder Tammy Daybell. So I screen recorded when the verdict came out and it was read. So if you want to see her reaction, in case you haven't, you can go to my Instagram or the Serial Killing a Podcast fan page that was created by a fan and see that video that I took and posted so you could see her reaction, which was lackluster at best. Also in the Letitia Stock trial, um, she was also found guilty of murdering her stepson. She is a horrible, vile creature, and I'm very, very glad that the jury or the judge did not fall for her DID, dissociative identity disorder bullshit, because clearly they knew that that was not the case. She's just evil. Okay, so let's get into it, right? So from nj.com, newjersey.com, the title reads, New Jersey man threatened a woman with meat tenderizer during robbery, cops say. A Bergen County man faces robbery and other charges after police say he brandished a meat tenderizer and robbed a woman on a street in Bergen Field. Rickett Carrasco, 33, of Cliffside Park, approached the woman about 12.20 a.m. on Monday in the area of Murray Hill Terrace and Sylvan Avenue in Bergenfield, police said. The woman, 45, was robbed of about $400 in cash, credit cards, a cell phone, and her purse, according to police captain William Duran. The man fled but was later arrested by police nearby as he continued to brandish the meat tenderizer. Quote, the suspect was also found in possession of the victim's belongings, Duran said, noting that officers were able to make the arrest, quote, without further incident during a potentially volatile situation, end quote. Carrasco was charged with second-degree robbery with threat of bodily injury, along with third- and fourth-degree weapons offenses, according to court records, and he is being held in jail. So he was going to attack her with a little meat tenderizer. Shocking. I've got a two-parter here. 
The first article for this one is from people.com and the title reads, Arizona woman murdered hiking alone on trail was, quote, viciously attacked from behind. Police searching for killer. So police say Lauren Heike, 29 years old, was viciously attacked from behind on a North Phoenix trail and fatally injured. The picture of her, she's absolutely stunning. Authorities are searching for the suspect they say is responsible for murdering an Arizona woman during a solo hike on a neighborhood trail Friday. Police say Lauren Hike, I'm probably saying that wrong, I apologize if I am, was found dead by a passerby in an area not easily visible the day after they believe she was killed. Police say Lauren, 29, was viciously attacked from behind on a North Phoenix trail and fatally injured. She sustained trauma to her body, though her exact cause of death has not been disclosed as of the writing of this article. Quote, she was beautiful inside and out, her mom, Lana, said during a press conference alongside police Wednesday. Quote, she had such a kind heart. Everybody who met her loved her. She was super funny. She was just a sweet child, just everything to us. She was my little girl. I'm going to miss her terribly, Lauren's dad, Jeff, added. I just hope they can find whoever did this to her. So police described her assailant as a male between five foot eight and six feet tall. He was last seen wearing dark clothing and a backpack. The motive is under investigation. So anyone with information on this case is asked to contact the Phoenix police at 602-262-7626 or the nonprofit Silent Witness at 480-948-6377. A $2,000 reward is being offered to anyone with information leading to an arrest. And then I have a follow-up article. This is from azcentral.com. Title reads, Man Arrested in Stabbing Death of Phoenix Hiker Lauren ID'd as Case Details Emerge. So the Phoenix police have identified the man they arrested Thursday in connection with the death of 29-year-old Lauren, who was found in a desert area in the northeastern part of the city. Zion William Teasley, 22, was charged on suspicion of first-degree murder in the stabbing death of her, according to the Phoenix police. She was hiking April 28th on a desert trail near East Libby Street and North 65 Place before being killed, Phoenix police have said. A welfare check was made to her home after a friend called police and said she had not come into work, which was unusual for her, according to court documents. She was found by police just before 11 a.m. on April 29th in a desert area near a neighborhood in the vicinity of 64th Street and Mayo or Mayo Boulevard after a resident reported seeing an injured person. On May 1st, they identified her. So police traced evidence back to the suspect. According to court records, an autopsy found that she suffered 15 stab wounds to her upper body, with the deepest laceration being three inches deep. 
Evidence and her belongings were found along a path running through a barbed wire fence to where her body was discovered, court documents detail. She had defensive wounds and small abrasions that were likely from her running through a barbed wire fence. She was seen on surveillance video walking on the trail around 10.52 a.m. April 28th with a man walking 36 seconds behind her, court documents show. About 22 seconds later, she goes out of camera view in the direction of where she was later found. A few seconds later, that same man is seen sprinting before a camera view on him is obstructed by vegetation. A few seconds later, that same man is seen sprinting before a camera view on him is obstructed by vegetation. Then about a minute later, the suspect is seen again as he runs in the opposite direction before trying to cross the barbed wire fence and eventually leaving camera view. A shoe discarded by her near the barbed wire fence was found with DNA that definitely matched Teasley charging documents note. Police then pinged Teasley's cell phone and found it had been in the area where she was killed. The phone's movements matched the directions the person on camera took, charging documents added. Teasley was identified as the suspect on surveillance footage by people who worked with him. Others who knew him also said Teasley carried a pocket knife, the size of which is consistent with her wounds, charging documents mention. So they asked him and he did not offer a motive. He added that investigators believe that she was able to fend him off and successfully escape, but that her injuries were too severe to recover from. So anyway, they found him, they caught him, allegedly. It's him, supposedly, let's hope. Oh, thoughts for the family. Okay, so our next one comes from Inside Edition. The title reads, Taylor Shaw Business. That is how her last name is spelled, Shaw Business accused of decapitating man during sex and slugging lawyer in court seeks bail reduction. Now, I kind of remember this case where I, if I, I think if it's the same one, I don't really pre-read these because I kind of want to go through them together with you guys, right? So we kind of figure this stuff out together. But if this is the one I'm thinking of, she like was doing a bunch, she was completely methed out and then she just attacked and stabbed and killed the man killed that man while like in the middle of having sex. Okay. So Taylor Shaw business 25 who physically attacked her previous lawyer in court back in February is accused of the, yep, the meth fueled murder and dismemberment of Shad Thyrion. Taylor, a Shaw business is back in court and looking to have her bail reduced while she awaits the start of her murder trial. The new lawyer representing Asha Business filed a motion last week asking that his client's bail, currently set at $2 million, be reduced to somewhere between $500,000 and $1 million. Shaw Business, 25, who physically attacked her previous lawyer in court back in February, is accused of the meth-fueled murder and dismemberment of Shad Thyrion. Shaw Business is charged with first-degree intentional homicide, mutilating a corpse, and third-degree sexual assault. 
Inside Edition Digital obtained a copy of the motion to reduce her bail filed in Brown County Court last week. Quote, the defendant should be released to participate in psychiatric and other mental health treatment, writes Shabiznes's new attorney, Christopher Froelich. Quote, the current cash bond is simply out of reach for the defendant and posting that bond results in an impossibility. End quote. I mean, I don't really think she should be out. Period. But anyway, he then adds, quote, this defendant has serious mental health treatment needs that cannot be met in the Brown County Jail setting. End quote. So, Froelich writes that previous defendants, quote, received substantially lower cash bonds for homicide charges, citing one individual whose bail was set at 500000 and calling the Shabiznes' $2 million bail, quote, arbitrary and capricious, end quote, using those top shelf words, I see. Her daughter, didn't know she had a daughter, was currently living in Texas with Shabiznes' grandparents, according to court records. She agrees to live with her father in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and wear a GPS monitoring device if she is released. The state will now get a chance to respond before the judge rules on the motion on May 9th. Meth-fueled murder suspect. So, the initial complaint filed last year alleges that Shabiznes told officers that she decapitated Therion, Therion, 25, during sex. She allegedly said that she and he had been doing methamphetamine in the hours before his death. The pair then went to his apartment where they had sex. Most of the information in that complaint came from Shabiznes, who willingly spoke with police after her arrest. Quote, at one point during the interview, she stated she could feel the victim's heart beating still as she was choking him, so she kept pulling and choking him harder, but the victim would not die and that he just kept rebuilding into muscle, says the complaint. Rebuilding into muscle. She must have been all methed out when she said that. His, quote, face turned purple, blood was coming out of his mouth, but she did not stop, end quote. At that point, she allegedly dismembered his lifeless body with knives she found in his kitchen. She also allegedly told officers that she sexually assaulted his corpse. Quote, Shabiznes stated the plan was for her to bring all of the body parts with her, but she got lazy and only ended up putting the leg backslash foot in the van and she forgot the head. Oh, shucks. This left members of the Green Bay Police Department tasked with the job of searching for the victim's body parts, a task that Shabiznes allegedly found very amusing. Quote, she responded that the police were going to have fun trying to find all of the organs, wrote Caleb Saunders, assistant district attorney for Brown County. The complaint says that the victim's head and a, quote, male organ... <clears throat> were found in a plastic container in the basement of his mother's home. His legs were located in a crock pot box behind the driver's seat of the vehicle that she had been driving and the rest of his body had been placed in various bags found in the basement. Trial is set to begin on July 24th. This, you know, guys, has been the year for trials. This has been the year for trials. I'm here for it. I'm not here for the murders. 
I'm not trying to goof about people that got murdered. That's not what I'm doing, but I'm saying love me a bit of trial. Okay, so the next article comes from Fox 10 Phoenix. Title reads, California man drives to Utah to kill brother, set house on fire, officials say. So, a Long Beach, California man allegedly drove from California to North Ogden, Utah to kill his brother, then set his house on fire, according to the Weber County Attorney's Office. Officials say on April 27th, Jeffrey Roberts, 66, arrived at his brother's home around 7.11 p.m., parked his van in the driveway, approached the front door, and rang the doorbell. His brother, Scott Roberts, and his wife were home alone eating when Jeffrey arrived. The two brothers began talking on the front porch, and within a few minutes, Jeffrey Roberts pulled out a gun from his jacket and began firing. Parts of the incident were caught on a ring doorbell camera, which the attorney's office has since shared with the public. Both Scott Roberts and his wife were struck by gunfire. Neighbors then called 911 after hearing multiple gunshots. I bet they didn't go outside to announce that they were going to call the cops, though, stupid Scott fucking Peterson. I digress. According to the attorney's house, once officers arrived on scene, Jeffrey began firing at them. Three officers then returned fire, engaging in a shootout with the suspect. Jeffrey was ultimately struck and died at the scene. Parts of the shootout was recorded on an officer's body camera. According to the attorney's office, only one officer was able to immediately activate his body camera. Following the shootout, video shows heavy smoke from inside the house. Officials say the suspect used road flares to spark the fire. Aerial video shows extensive fire damage to the roof. It looks like a pretty decent sized house. The victim's wife was still inside the house while the fire was spreading. She was rescued and taken to the hospital. Scott Roberts died as a result of gunshot wounds. Police say Jeffrey was armed with a 9mm handgun, a 12-gauge shotgun, over 150 shotgun shells, and was carrying a total of 23 fully loaded handgun magazines. A motive for the shooting is unknown. The incident is being investigated. Well, that sucks probably stole his brother's girl. I don't know. So our next one comes from CNN.com. The title reads, Attorneys for Menendez Brothers claim new evidence could overturn life sentences. This I've got to hear. So attorneys for the brothers, Eric and Lyle Menendez, who were convicted of the 1989 murder of their parents, say new evidence shows the convictions and life sentences should be overturned according to court documents filed Wednesday. At their high-profile trial decades ago, the brothers did not deny killing Jose and Kitty Menendez, but argued that they should not be convicted of premeditated murder because they acted in self-defense after enduring a lifetime of abuse by their father. The brothers were retried and found guilty again in 1996 after a first trial ended with jurors deadlocked. 
In a habeas petition filed in Los Angeles Superior Court, the brother's attorneys say that the letter sent by Eric to his cousin eight months before the murders shares details of his father's abuse. The petition also says Roy Rossello, who was in the Latin boy band Menudo in the 1980s, it was with Ricky Martin, Menudo had Ricky Martin in it, anyway, says he was raped by Jose Menendez, who was an executive at RCA Records. So first time hearing of that one. The Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office, which prosecuted the two trials in the 1990s, told CNN in a statement, quote, we have received the habeas petition in the Menendez matter and it is currently under review, end quote. The letter from Eric Menendez to his cousin Andy Kano in December 1988 says, it's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. He's so overweight that I can't stand to see him. I never know when it's going to happen and it's driving me crazy. Every night I stay up thinking he might come in. I need to put it out of my mind. I know what you said before, but I'm afraid. You just don't know dad like I do. He's crazy. He's warned me a hundred times about telling anyone, especially Lyle. Am I serious wimpus? I don't know. I'll make it through this. I can't handle it, Andy. I need to stop thinking about it. End quote. The letter was discovered by Jose Menendez's younger sister and Andy's mother, Marta, who shared it with journalist Robert Rand in April of 2018, so they had that for a while, who then shared the letter with Eric Menendez's former appellate counsel, Cliff Gardner, the same month. A review of court records shows the letter was not presented at either of the two trials, the document says. Gardner also discovered last year that, as part of a documentary, Rossello said in an interview, quote, He was anally raped twice and orally copulated by Jose Menendez when Roy was only 13 or 14 years old, end quote, while he was in New York City performing shows, the document says. This is the kid that was in Menudo with Ricky Martin. Rossello shared the assault in a sworn declaration in an exhibit filed with the habeas petition. The attorneys argue these two pieces of evidence counters prosecutors' narrative that Jose Menendez was not violent or the type of person who would abuse children. Quote, In short, the new evidence not only shows that Jose Menendez was very much a violent and brutal man who would sexually abuse children, but it is strongly suggests that, in fact, he was still abusing Eric Menendez as late as December 1988 just as the defense had argued all along, the court documents said. So attorneys are asking the court to either vacate the conviction and sentence against the two brothers or permit discovery and an evidentiary hearing when they can provide proof, the document says. Now, CNN has reached out to the attorneys for comment, but it doesn't say whether or not that's been successful. Now, I do want to say, I'd kind of forgotten about this case for a while. If you guys want me to do this one, like kind of an in-depth one with these, especially with this new information, let me know. Leave a comment if you're on Spotify. I don't know if you can leave a comment on Apple or any of the other ones, but if you can't leave a comment on the actual podcast, please just shoot me a message on Instagram if you have it, at serial underscore killing. I love getting messages and suggestions. I screenshot them. And then I put them in a list so that I don't forget and I kind of know who suggested it. And then also, 
If you're on Facebook, again, come join the Serial Killing a Podcast fan page. Um, that community is growing that really quickly, and we have a pretty good time over there. Um, just let me know there as well. You can tell me. But let me know if you want me to cover the Menendez brothers. That one might be kind of fun, but only if you guys want to hear it. Okay, but it does, to me, sound like perhaps that should be revisited then, you know? Because I certainly thought they were lying about their father, but that kind of sounds like they weren't. So, okay. Now, here's one that an international fan sent me. Thank you so, so much for this. This comes from kentonline.co.uk, and it the title reads, Dartford serial killer Patrick McKay, who I'm pretty sure I've covered, who killed Priest with axe in Shorn, spotted at bus station one day release from prison. I cannot believe they've let him out. What? So the article says one of Britain's most prolific serial killers has been seen out one day release from prison. Patrick McKay, who's now 70, who grew up around Dartford and Gravesend, was jailed in 1975 after confessing to brutally murdering 11 people. This week, he has been spotted walking around a city center bus station. He was seen in Bristol wearing glasses and a baseball cap while out on day release from open prison HMP Layhill in Gloucestershire, the Daily Mail reported. If I pronounce that correctly, you let me know. I think I nailed it. So McKay was jailed for life with a minimum of 20 years in 1975 for three killings, but originally owned up to eight more before retracting his admission. He was 23 years old when he was jailed for stabbing and strangling pensioner Isabella Griffiths, 87, in Belgravia, Belgravia, central London, in 1974, and 89-year-old Adele Price the following year. McKay returned to Kent near his old stomping ground and befriended a priest. Father Anthony Crean was later hacked to death with an axe and left in his blood-filled bath in the village of Shorn near Gravesend. I did cover this. I remember this. It's been a long time ago, though, so you might go back and find it and listen to the whole story. Um, so the article goes on. The other eight attacks, which McKay initially admitted, remain unsolved, and a judge has said they will stay on file. Dubbed Britain's Forgotten Serial Killer, the 70-year-old, who now goes by David Groves, is the country's longest-serving prisoner. McKay was expected to go before a parole board in April after applying for early release. He had been set for a hearing last September, but like his previous bids, it was rejected. Although he became eligible for release at the end of his minimum term in March 1995, McKay has always been deemed too high risk to be safely managed in the community. After being spotted this week on day release, Dartford MP Gareth Johnson, who has previously spoke of his reservations at the killer's release in the Commons, told The Sun that he was, quote, still young enough to kill again, end quote. The killer spent the first 27 years of his sentence in a top security Category A jail before being moved to open prison HMP Layhill in Gloucestershire. An Amazon Prime Video documentary was released earlier this year featuring accounts from the former Kent police officers, forensic psychologists, and criminologists. 
Neighbors have also shared their recollections of the McKay family when they moved to Frobisher Way in Gravesend. I really hope I nailed that. I think I did. That's not the point. I did cover him before. So if you want his whole story, it exists in the podcast stratosphere somewhere. Kind of scary that he's out. Not going to lie. I also have, I don't think I'm going to do it here, guys, but I also have the romance novel that Chad Daybell wrote to Lori Vallow Daybell. If you all want me to read you that one. I don't know if it's copyrighted or not, though. But anyway, if you want me to read you that one, hopefully I don't get sued for it. Let me know. I'll keep it in my my little tab here if you guys want me to read it. I'm sure it's thoroughly disgusting. So our next one comes from, this is the one I told the Facebook group I was going to butcher, from the OttawaCitizen.com. Okay, the title reads, Man, 22, charged with two counts of first-degree murder and shoot a blonde slayings. Blondeau? I'm sorry if I butchered that. So, a 22-year-old man has been charged with two counts of first-degree murder in connection with the discovery of two victims in the small town of Chutablondo, east of Hawkesbury. (laughs) I'm not saying that town name anymore. So, Gavin Chisholm of that town has been charged. He remains in custody. Late Wednesday, the Sûreté du Québec which was investigating a serious assault in its jurisdiction near the Ontario-Quebec border, alerted OPP that they had learned of a potential crime scene in OPP territory. So the officers went to a residence in that town where two victims were found. They said the identities of the victims have not been confirmed and that post-mortem examinations are being conducted. They noted the case is a joint investigation between Ontario Police and the Surette du Québec mm, under the direction of the OPP Criminal Investigation Branch in conjunction with the Office of the Chief Coroner of Ontario and Centre of Forensic Sciences. Now, residents were advised that there is no danger to public safety, although there continued to be a heavy police presence in the area on Friday. So for my Canadian listeners, number one, I apologize for butchering that. Please forgive me. And second, anyone with information is asked to call the Hawkesbury OPP at 1-888-310-1122. Calls can also be made to Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS or online at crimestoppers.ca. So there's that. Now this one, um, some friends of mine actually knew these people, so that's kind of creepy. This comes from WCYB.com or News 5. The title reads, Caregivers charged with murder in Washington County, Tennessee, following death of man in 2022. So coming out of Washington County, Tennessee, two caregivers, including the brother of a man who died in August 2022, has been charged with murder in Washington County, Tennessee. According to the Washington County, Tennessee Sheriff's Office, 73-year-old Gerald W. Doubt Jr. and 70-year-old Vicki Jane Doubt have been charged with first-degree murder, aggravated abuse of an elderly or vulnerable adult, and aggravated neglect of an elderly or vulnerable adult. 
Police said the charges came following the death of Michael Doubt in August of 2022. Police say Gerald and Vicki Doubt were caregivers for Michael, who was Gerald's brother. Both Gerald and Vicki Doubt were arrested Tuesday and taken to the Washington County Detention Center where they are both being held on a $250,000 bond. So I don't see a manner of death just yet, but this couple are, you know, older, elderly, in their 70s. So we'll have to see if we find out anything else about that. But I actually know people who knew them. So for our next one, we have the Daytona Beach News Journal online. The title reads, Man beats five-year-old child for wetting the bed, fracturing his skull. So a Volusia County man fractured the skull of his live-in girlfriend's five-year-old son before wetting the bed, according to the county sheriff's deputies. Sean Stone, 32, was charged with aggravated child abuse, a first-degree felony. He was being held Tuesday in the county branch jail without bail. The mother believes the child may be autistic, according to the sheriff's report. Stone left the home on an all-terrain vehicle after the alleged beating, but was spotted on Marsh Road near DeLand and arrested, said sheriff's spokesman Andrew Gant. Deputies learned of the abuse around 8.30 a.m. when hospital staff at Advent Health DeLand called to report the injured child, investigators said. Sheriff's deputies said the incident happened at a Valley Forge Road home near DeLand. The mother had gone to a doctor's appointment, so the child's mother had left to go to her doctor's appointment in Orlando with her daughter, who has cerebral palsy, leaving the boy with stone. The woman said a bad feeling overcame her as she headed to the doctor's appointment. She opened the camera application on her phone to see inside her home. Smart woman. In the living room, she saw Stone standing over the child, repeatedly punching him in the head as he lay in a fetal position, deputy said. Ugh. When the boy managed to get out of the bed, Stone kicked him. She could hear the child begging Stone to stop. Oh, Hearing your own child. Oh. Stone then grabbed a mop and began striking the child with it. He struck the child with so much force that the head of the mop broke off. As the camera shut off, the woman returned home and confronted Stone about hitting the child. Stone told the woman, quote, I, explicative, hate you, and I, explicative, hate your child. Deputies noted in the report, explicative is the word that is spelled out in the article. I'm sure it is fucking because I'm not scared to say it. Now, at the hospital, a detective noted that the child had a cut lip, bruised eyes and bruises on his face, the top of his head and his thigh. The child also had two circular marks that appeared to be cigarette burns on his right shoulder blade. Okay, so detectives further learned from the attending doctor that the child had fractured ribs that were healing as well as fractures on his wrist joint. So, of course, that means that he'd been abusing him before this particular day. Now, because of the skull fracture, doctors at Advent Health DeLand had the child transferred to Arnold Palmer Children's Hospital in Orlando. 
The child was reported to be in stable condition with non-life-threatening injuries. I have absolutely no patience for people that put their hands on children. Oh, my God. Okay, so our next article comes from NBCNews.com. The title reads, Man Charged After Axe Murders of Sister-in-Law and Nine-Year-Old Niece. So it says, Everoy Morrison, 44, was living in the basement of the New Jersey home where his sister-in-law, Keisha Morrison, and her daughter, Kelsey, lived and were found dead on April 18th. A New Jersey man has been charged with murder after the grisly axing death of his sister-in-law and nine-year-old niece. Everoy L. Morrison, 44, of Roselle, was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, motor vehicle theft, and several weapons counts, the Union County Prosecutor's Office and Roselle Police announced Monday. The bodies of Keisha Morrison, 45, and her young daughter, Kelsey Morrison, were both found April 18th by police officers who had been called to a home in the 200 block of West 7th Avenue in Roselle for a report of two missing people. She and her daughter were absolutely beautiful. Officers found the victim's bodies and determined that Keisha Morrison's car had been stolen. Investigators tracked the car to Maryland, where the driver, Everoy Morrison, was stopped and arrested for possessing a stolen car. An investigation by the prosecutor's office, Roselle Police, and Maryland State Police led to Morrison's arrest. Officials said he had been living in the basement of Keisha Morrison's home at the time of the slayings. Atasha Scott, the sister of Keisha's husband, Gary, told NBC New York that Everoy had been living there for more than two years and was recently told to move out, but he had not done so yet. Quote, I can't go into details exactly what occurred, but I can tell you she was uncomfortable with him living in her basement, Scott said. Scott said the killer had, quote, wrapped them up in bedsheets, stuffed them under my niece's bed. Gary allegedly found what appeared to be the murder weapon, a bloody axe, stuffed between two mattresses in his home, in his bedroom, the station reported. Quote, on the floor, it seems like somebody was trying to clean up blood like it was swirled around, Scott told NBC New York. Scott also told the station that Everoy was jealous of Gary's life, saying that he wanted what he had. Everoy Morrison was being held in the Baltimore County Detention Center in Maryland, awaiting extradition. It's not immediately clear whether he has a lawyer. Quote, we hope that this arrest can bring some small measure of comfort to all those grieving Keisha and Kelsey, Union County Prosecutor William A. Daniel said. The prosecutor's office and police didn't immediately respond to requests for more details. I mean, axe murdered? Wow. So for our next one, cbsnews.com, title reads, American Man, 71, arrested in Philippines after girlfriend's body found in water drum at their house. So a 71-year-old American man has been arrested after the body of his Filipina girlfriend was found in a water drum at the couple's home near the Philippine capital, police said Wednesday. 
Police in Bakur City told AFP they arrested the man on Tuesday after discovering the 48-year-old woman's body inside a blue plastic drum sealed in a garbage bag and duct tape at the house just outside of Manila. So this blue plastic drum looks literally exactly like the one Jeffrey Dahmer had used in his house. So immediately, you guys know, you see it in your mind. Officers visited the address hours after the woman's adult son reported she had been missing for four days. Her son also told authorities he smelled a foul odor there. Police also recovered three knives and a length of rope, and the man was taken into custody on suspicion of murder, it said. Quote, we are aware of this case. Due to U.S. Privacy Act considerations, we cannot provide any further information, a U.S. Embassy spokesman in Manila told AFP. Police said an autopsy would be performed to determine the cause of the woman's death. Never trust when you see one of those blue drums. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Okay, so I also have five, five articles here about this uh, woman who wrote a children's book talking about grief after she lost her husband. Turns out she murdered him. And I'm kind of thinking maybe I should just put this in the lineup for a full podcast. What do you guys think? Let me know. Uh, Instagram or Facebook. You can email me, SerialKillingInstagram at gmail.com as well. And let me know if you'd just like me to cover the whole thing. I've got so many articles here. I think it's kind of just whole podcast worthy. So let me know. But if not, then I'll add this into next Monday's Monday morning murder in the news. So our last one here comes from NBC Bay Area. Title reads, Man accused of killing ex-girlfriend with samurai sword in San Carlos enters plea. So a man accused of using a samurai sword to behead his ex-girlfriend on a San Carlos street pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity Thursday. Gotta love that insanity plea. Jose Rafael Solano Landeda is charged with murdering his ex-girlfriend, 27-year-old Karina Castro, the mother of his daughter, during an argument outside her apartment in September last year. Police say he used a samurai sword to nearly behead her. Landeda also pleaded not guilty per the facts of the case, claiming the victim had threatened him and his family, and he was responding. Robert Cummings, Landetta's attorney, pointed out his client has a documented history of mental illness and claims he suffered temporary insanity at the time of the argument and for some time afterwards. Quote, there was this period of time that he was completely mute and not moving at all. Cummings said, quote, other times there was small expressions and stuff, and as they upped his medications, he came out of it. Castro's family angrily scoffed at that claim, quote, he's just dragging this out as much as he can, Martin Castro Jr., Castro's father, said. This insanity thing, there's no way. There's too much proof there for everybody to see. He isn't insane. He wasn't insane. He knew exactly what he was doing, end quote. Now, legal analyst Dean Johnson said the criteria for being found not guilty by reason of insanity requires the defense to prove one crucial point. 
Quote, the criteria is that he didn't understand the difference between right and wrong at the time of the crime. The court granted a defense request to have Landetta go through a mental health evaluation by a court-appointed psychologist and psychiatrist. The two sides will return to court July 27th to hear the results. Prosecutor Josh Keekley Stauffer said he is not satisfied with the report. If he's not, he's ready to have Landetta reevaluated by their own experts. And this is what they do, guys, really. This is what they do. So that is all I have for you guys this week. I already have some articles kind of ready to go next week. Now, if you would like a midweek murder in the news, let me know that as well. I'm asking an awful lot of you guys, and I understand that. So open communication is key. I really want to hear from you guys for sure. Let me know if you want a full podcast on this author writing a children's book about grief and we find out she murdered her husband. Seems kind of juicy. Yay that Lori Vallow is guilty. Yay that Letitia Stock is guilty. If you guys also happen to know of any other kind of big cases that are kind of crazy, let me know about those too in case I don't know about them because I'm also trying to keep up with this Brian Koberger, um, the Idaho murders. We got to see what's going to happen with Chad. Now, I'm of the opinion that Chad might just plea out after seeing this whole um court case go down with Lori. I don't know. I put a poll on Instagram about did you think he was going to plead out or do you think he's going to go to trial as well? I'm curious to hear your thoughts. And as always, I want you guys to have a good week. We're all in this together. For those of you who did ask, yes, last week I survived. It wasn't too bad after all, but we're going to get through it. And then remember this Saturday, May 20th, I'm going to be in Rogers, Arkansas at True Crime Fest all day. I'm going to have my own little booth. If you guys are local or close or within driving distance and you want to come see me, just come down and see me. I think it would be super cool. We can chat. Maybe we'll solve a a case or two, you know, you never know. But have a good week. Hang in there. We're all in this together. I've got my nine to five tomorrow as well. Love you guys. See you Thursday.